Welcome to Pilgrim Talk Theology for Sojourners. I'm John Sweat. And I'm Dylan Harrison. And this episode, we've got an eschatological intrusion. Dr. Lee Irons. That's right. Coming to talk about the theology and the life of Meredith Klein. He is a dude. Very much so. And he's a biblical theologian. Very, very much so. That's right. So we're going to talk about things like Klein's contribution to biblical theology, who were some of his major influences, what was the conflict that uh, kind of occurred between Klein and Murray over the Covenant of Works. We talked briefly about Klein and his critique of theonomy and how Klein would have addressed theonomy, how he does address theonomy. And then we kind of close with uh, Dr. Lee Irons kind of giving us a landscape of the work, the works of Meredith Klein and kind of what a what a good order would be to yeah. read them. Especially for beginners who have not been introduced to who Meredith Klein is. That's right. And we hope that through this podcast, you can be. So, Dr. Irons, why don't you go ahead and just give us kind of a sketch of who he is and his teaching ministry. And that will kind of lay the landscape for us. Sure. Yeah. So Meredith Klein was a professor who taught Old Testament at a number of reformed institutions. He lived from 1922 to 2007. Uh, He was associated primarily with Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He was a student there in the 1940s. uh, And then he also became a professor there in 1948. Later, he moved to Gordon-Conwell, where he spent the bulk of his teaching ministry as a professor there. And then uh, near the end of his life, in the, in the last few decades, he began to uh, fly out to California for the uh, spring semester, and he taught Old Testament at the new Westminster West that was founded in 1981. He taught there from 1981 to 2002, I believe it was. He was also a minister uh, ordained in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Yeah, and that's helpful. And just while you're saying that, you know, you're mentioning uh, an interesting time frame and just uh, Presbyterianism in America. He rubbed uh, shoulders a lot of, I mean, tremendous theologians. I know, I know when he was at Gordon Conwell, he taught alongside of, of Greg Beale. Is there any one or two particular theologians that you would say really influenced his? Uh, well, his biblical theology, his theology as a whole, or or would it just be kind of a a group of them? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he was trained at Westminster Theological Seminary in the 1940s, so he would have had the uh, original faculty of Westminster back in those days. So that would have been, you know, John Murray, Cornelius Van Til, and others. Uh, they had a significant influence on his thinking. Uh, theologically, probably his biggest influence would have been uh, Gerhard Foss and also Charles Hodge. Okay. Okay. And uh, with that, <clears throat> in researching him a little bit, preparing for this, I noticed a big emphasis on uh, biblical theology. Could you speak on how Klein has furthered biblical theology, especially pertaining to kingdom, covenant, and any of those other concepts? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, uh, Gerhard Voss was a significant influence on him theologically. And so Gerhard Voss is known as the father of Reformed biblical theology. And Klein was uh, working within that tradition of trying to understand the organic unity of Scripture, understanding the history of special revelation and seeing how God's kingdom uh, 
developed organically from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem. He believed that the kingdom of God is the best overarching uh, topic or theme to incorporate all of scripture. So he would argue that the kingdom of God was initially established in the Garden of Eden, uh, and then you can see how it progresses all the way to the final consummation. Yeah, that's so helpful. Like when when first time I read King of Prologue, I noticed just a lot of the the eschatology in the garden, right? Eschatology precedes soteriology. He really takes some of that from Voss and unpacks yeah. that further um, in some interesting interesting ways. Even uh, really emphasizing the fact that man, being made in God's image, has in inbuilt in him and created in him this eschatological goal. Um, it's not something that's like added on as a layer over top of creation, but from the very beginning, there's that that inbuilt goal. And um, would you say Kingdom Prologue's kind of his first complete, I mean, I know he's got several biblical theology books, but would you say that's kind of his first go at kind of, uh, even though it's Covenantal Foundations for Genesis, kind of his first biblical theology text that would kind of show his thought there? Or is there something before that? Uh, yeah, he had several books before that. Um, Kingdom Prologue was actually a classroom syllabus that, uh, he just continually added to throughout his career. So you, you can't really say that King and Prologue was the first or the last. It was just a uh, organically progressive. I was about to say. That, yeah. It developed and grew over the years. Man, what a class oh. to sit in. If that's a syllabus, yeah. let me sit in on that one. Yeah, it was the final version of it was published in 2006. But earlier generations of students would have had earlier versions of it, like when I was a student in 1993, I had a, a copy that was, um, you know, a little bit pretty close to the 2006 edition, but not as complete. And so everybody had their own version of that book as they went through his courses throughout the years. But he had other books before that. Um, for example, The Structure of Biblical Authority or By Oath Consigned. Treaty of the Great King, these are some of his other earlier books that deal primarily with the issue of the ancient Near Eastern uh, suzerain vassal treaties and using that as a, a way of trying to um, understand the biblical covenant. Yeah. He called, he considered there to be remarkable similarities, resemblances between um, God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai and the the suzerain battle treaties that uh, were discovered in the 20th century. Yeah, it seems like even in covenant literature since him, there's been uh, more covenant theologians who are picking up on that and trying to unpack that more. Is that something, is that uh, the ancient Eastern, uh, Near Eastern covenant vassal treaties, is that something he did his PhD in? Or is that just something as he's studying the Old Testament, he starts to realize there's these similarities and he begins to go and and make those connections? Um it was actually through, after he finished his PhD, uh, there was a, uh, an Old Testament scholar named George Mendenhall, who is not Reformed, but he uh, published a book that um, first pointed out the similarities between uh, the Israelite co- covenant at Sinai and these ancient suzerain vassal treaties. And so that sparked... Uh, Klein's thought, and he just ran with it. I think that book was probably published in the 1950s, if I believe. 
Mm. By then, he had already finished his PhD at Dropsy University, um, and it, it wasn't on his his doctoral dissertation was not on that particular topic. It was on the Habiru, which is like a whole other interesting thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And in addition to the massive amount of work on Genesis, another thing that kept coming up was a uh, maybe some contention between him and Murray specifically over the covenant of works and how he emphasized merit in his twofold covenant of works, federalism right. view, yeah. that, the twofold being Adam and Christ. Uh, could you explain some of that a little bit, maybe unpack that? Because it seemed as I was researching that, your work kept coming up referencing it. So I think we're speaking uh -huh. to someone who uh, has probably compiled as much of this as any other person has. Yeah, so you're hitting on an interesting point. So as I mentioned, he, he studied under John Murray uh, in the 1940s. And I think initially his own uh, thinking on the issue of merit and specifically the nature of the Adamic covenant um, was very much influenced by Murray. But over the years, he began to uh, realize that there were some issues in areas in Murray's thinking about this that he didn't agree with. Um, I would say sometime around 1960 or so, he began to deviate from Murray. Uh, Murray had, had written a book, actually a booklet, called The Covenant of Grace, a biblical theological study. It was published in 1953, mm -hmm. and it's only 32 pages long, but it was a pretty interesting attempt to recast covenant theology. He actually says that. Um, he says that he's trying to recast covenant theology under the banner of always reforming, right? Always uh, trying to further study scripture. And so he uh, recast covenant theology by um, redefining what is the essence of a covenant. So in traditional covenant theology, like the classic 17th century reformed federal system, uh, covenant is defined more broadly to include two main types of covenant. There's covenant based on the works principle, like the covenant of works with Adam in the garden. And then there are covenants that are based on promise and grace, uh, like the covenant of grace. But Murray said he didn't like that bifurcation and Murray said we need to recast covenant theology and so he redefined covenant and he's just giving like the most we're talking about like as a theological thing how do we define the concept of covenant before we even get into looking at specific covenants here or there whether Adam or Abraham or whatever just like in the most abstract theological sense what is the covenant Murray defined the covenant as a sovereign administration of grace mm. Interesting. So you can see that if you define it that way, then that, by definition, rules out the concept of a covenant of work. Yeah. And so he didn't, he didn't deny that there was a covenant with Adam, but he didn't want to call it the covenant of work because he saw grace as being essential to a covenant. So... But that's problematic because with with Adam, we're talking about the pre-fall situation. So how do you define grace 
to fit into the free fall situation. So Klein saw that that was uh, an issue and he, um, in the sixties began to question that this was also right around the same time when he is noticing, you know, George Mendenhall's work and he's seeing that there are these remarkable similarities between the Sinai covenant and the ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaties. And what you see with both, both the ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaties and with Sinai is that it's not a covenant purely of grace. There are blessings and curses, right? You know, if the vassal disobeys and transgresses the covenant, there's a curse. How does that fit into the idea of sovereign administration of grace? Mm. So Klein said, no, we need to define covenant more broadly. And it, basically he's recovering the old classic federal system of the, the covenant that works in the covenant of grace. Uh, and then of course you can add in the covenant of redemption, which is behind the covenant of grace, but he's recovering the old classical federal system and realizing that you have to define covenant broad enough to incorporate both types. So he defined Klein's definition of covenant in response to Murray was it's an oath bound commitment. So he saw the oath, the taking of an oath as the key element that determines the existence of a covenant. However, there are two different uh, ways in which the oath can be taken. And that is what creates the two different types of covenant. So if we're talking about uh, now we're talking about biblical covenants, not ancient Near Eastern treaties, but in, in the biblical arena, uh, when it's a covenant between God and man, when man takes the oath, man is binding himself to keep the terms of the covenant on pain of curse. That creates a law covenant or a works type of covenant. But when God alone takes the oath, that is when God is binding himself to, to keep the promise. And that creates a promissory covenant. So the classic example of that would be in Genesis 15, when God himself, in the form of the theophany of the smoking firepot, passes between the carcasses, mm. and God is taking the oath upon himself. That's a promissory, gracious covenant in which Adam or Abraham doesn't have anything to do. He just simply believes. He doesn't have to keep the covenant in order to avoid a curse. He just simply believes and receives the promise. And so that was Klein's disagreement with Murray. And he saw that issue as having major implications for your whole understanding of covenant theology, the whole unfolding of biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation. It also affects your understanding of the gospel. Mm. Because if, if, you, if you go with Murray, I know, now he's not saying that Murray himself denied the gospel, but he's, he's, he's seeing the implications of what Murray is saying, that if you deny the possibility of a works-based covenant altogether, if you deny the possibility of merit, in other words, then you have no room for the idea of Christ's active obedience being that which is meriting heaven for us and his righteousness being imputed to us. So he saw the gospel itself as being at stake. He didn't say that Murray was denying the gospel or that Murray denied justification. Actually, he didn't. Murray was very, very strong on justification. And he wrote a whole book called The Imputation of Adam's Sin, in which he talked about the two Adams and 
just as Adam's sin is imputed to his posterity, so Christ's righteousness is imputed to the elect. So a strong, you know, clear idea of the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. But over in this other topic, he saw that there was a little crack happening, mm. you know, and that Mary had kind of opened the door here to uh, deny the imputation of the active obedience of Christ, even though he himself didn't deny it, but sure. he opened the door to denying it because he removed this idea of the covenant that works. Mm. Yeah, this kind of brings back, it's interesting, um, Dr. Irons, this brings us back to full circle, really the other two episodes we've done with you. Uh, season one, we did imputation and justification, you know, how we understand the the forensic, the, you know, Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, how does that relate right. to justification and union with Christ? And then we had you back on to talk about the new perspective on Paul. And one of the things, I mean, I know when we say Meredith Klein, people think of his biblical theology, but one of the things I'm so thankful for um, and just my time uh, reading him and, and even in seminary where I'm, I'm actually s- surrounded by a lot of guys who would be in favor of something like what Norman Shepard, you know, how he articulates the gospel, reading Meredith Klein and especially his uh, little little paper, I, yeah, paper, I guess you would call it, Covenant Theology Under Attack, uh, where he's yeah. kind of really interacting with some of those objections to the covenant of works. It's really helpful to see that 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 federal structure of scripture, that you've got a covenant of works with Adam, but you've got a a, a covenant of works, if you will, with with the Son of God in eternity past and the covenant of redemption that is right. fulfilled in the covenant of grace. So, and, I, and I'm just thankful for the way that you were careful with your language because, you know, Murray's book, Imputation of, uh, uh, what is it, Imputation of Adamson, or, or the little book yeah. that you just mentioned, is a tremendous book on imputation. Um, but it, would it be fair to say that, I think you were hinting at it, that his conception of the covenant of grace kind of opened the door um, for kind of the Norman Shepherd federal vision, things like that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, it wasn't only Murray, but yeah, there were other um, uh, Klein uh, notices the same type of thinking um, in other theologians like Daniel Fuller, um, Norman Shepherd, as you mentioned, even Karl Barth, I don't know if Klein talked about Barth that much, but there's this general tendency throughout the 20th century. Uh, the Torrance brothers, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with those guys, they they were major guardians in the mid-20th century who were saying, we need to revise covenant theology so that it's not a contract, but rather it's this idea of this gracious covenant. You know, it sounds good, right? It all sounds warm and fuzzy, like covenant, right? It's got to be gracious. It's God with his people in union and communion. Oh, it's awesome. But, okay, that's true if you're talking about the covenant of grace, but if you're using that as your overarching definition of what a covenant is, then logically you're ruling out the very concept of a covenant of works. And if you don't believe in that concept, that there is a covenant of works with Adam in the garden or a works principle with uh, republished with Israel at Mount Sinai with the blessings and curses or a works principle in the uh, eternal covenant of redemption, between the Father and the Son. If you don't see works in those three spots, then you don't have any place for, well, it's going to be hard for you to be able to see the concept of being justified uh, by the imputation of Christ's merit. Mm. Because to have the concept of merit, you have to have a works context to make that make sense. But if you think that works, by definition, is something that God never 
Like, for example, Daniel Fuller. He said that by definition, God never related to man on the basis of works, even before the fall. That work is just by definition something that has to be eliminated from our theology. Mm. Well, if you do that, if you eliminate the concept of merit or the concept of works uh, from your theology in toto, where it can't exist anywhere, then you're denying Christ's merit. <laughs> That's right. So it's, you can't have it both ways, you know? It's like, so, if, and that's actually what happened with some people. So Daniel Fuller, Norman Shepard, and others did take that next step that Murray did not. Murray didn't take right. the step, but they took the step of saying, yeah, we, we're going to bite the bullet here. We don't believe that we're saved by the act of obedience of Christ. Mm. Mm, that, yeah, that's a good, that's at least a good picture into kind of the 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 uh, consequences of ideas, and especially as we're dealing with theology and scripture, and the, most importantly, the gospel. So here's the, uh, here's the uh, hot topic, popular one I want to hit you with. This is going to get everyone flocking to this episode. I want you to tell us, Dr. Irons, how Meredith Klein helps us deal with theonomy. I know it's a huge, I, I know that's a huge question, but if you just dial in, how does Meredith Klein's reading of, let's just say Genesis, um, the covenant made with Adam, covenant made with Noah, with Noah, how does that help shape the way the church is to view culture and, and her relationship to it? Sure, we can get into that. Um, so, one of the key things in Klein's thought is uh, this idea that the the Israelites theocracy um the whole thing that god was doing with israel which begins with the exodus out of egypt but then you have you know joshua bringing the people into the land the conquest of canaan the uh destruction of the canaanites cleansing the land setting up this holy realm where god is dwelling in the holy realm of the land in the midst of his holy people one of the key things in Clyde's thought is to look at that and say, what is that? What is that mosaic theocracy all about? What is God doing there? And, and actually, Klein was not unique in this. Um, he got this idea from Watt. Mm. Watt, uh, in his biblical theology, page 126, uh, very clearly states, I'll quote it here, he says that the theocracy typified nothing short of the perfected kingdom of God, the consummate state of heaven. That's boss. But Klein took that idea and ran with it and said, look, um, what God is doing when he's setting up this kingdom with Israel centered upon the temple, so it has a uh, cultic focus to it, and it's all under this covenant, the Sinai covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai with the blessings and curses, blessings offered to Israel if they obey the covenant and keep the covenant, curses threatened if they disobey. And those blessings and curses, by the way, are temporal. Uh, Klein says that that whole thing is a picture of heaven. It's a prototype of heaven, of the perfected kingdom of God. It's a picture of the New Jerusalem. And if you want to go backwards in time, it's a recapitulation of the situation in Eden. Although Eden was just a kind of the seed of it because Adam still had to do more work to uh, extend the boundaries of the garden to global dimensions. But you can see these three things that are all connected. Eden, 
the theocracy, and the New Jerusalem. And these are all expressions of the kingdom of God. They're all theocratic. They're all theocratic arrangements where only the righteous, only the holy may dwell. I mean, think back at Eden, right? What was Adam supposed to do? Well, he was supposed to be God. It says in Genesis 2, 15, that God placed him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And that word to keep is a priestly term that is used later on in the book of Numbers to describe the Levitical priests and their job of keeping the holiness of the, of the sanctuary and preventing anything unclean from entering into it. So Adam was, effectively, he was like a priest. He was a priestly guardian of the holy sanctuary of the theocracy of Eden. And so he was supposed to confront the serpent. When the serpent came wandering in and started talking to the wife and saying, hey, let's discuss the terms of this covenant here, did God really say? Adam wasn't supposed to stand there and, hey, hey, this is neat, let's have a nice theological debate. No, he was supposed to yes. be the priestly guardian and execute God's judgment upon the serpent and get that guy out. Get him out. He doesn't belong here. That's what he was supposed to do. Mm. Of course, he failed. He didn't, you know, he abdicated his priestly authority and his his authority as the head of the covenant household and everything to downhill from that, but but that's what he should have done. Well, that's the same thing with what Israel was doing. They were going into the land, they were confronting the serpents and they were wiping out the Canaanites, the seed of the serpents. So that is their job. That is what a theocracy is. That's why when you get to Second Peter three, it says, What's the new creation gonna be like? The fundamental definition of the new heavens and the new earth is that it's the place in which righteousness dwells. Mm. Second Peter three, I think that's around verse thirteen. You know, it talks about the elements melting the fervent heat and cleansing the earth from all that defiled. God's gonna bring in a new conquest, right? A new Joshua is gonna come and Christ himself is going to descend from heaven and wipe out all the Canaanites that are currently inhabiting his holy world and cleanse it of all sin and only righteousness will dwell in the new creation forever and ever. So with that understanding of what is going on with Israel and the nature of that covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai to govern their life in the land, that helps you to see then why Klein would be um, opposed to saying that we should use that as a model for how the church should relate to the culture today. Because we're not living in a theocracy. We're living in uh, the already and the not yet. We're living in the, the time between the two ages and we're living as pilgrims on this earth. So our job is not to, you know, go in like Joshua and destroy the Canaanites. Our job is to be a salt and a light, bear witness to Christ, uh, to love our enemies, and to do good to those that persecute us, be a witness to the gospel of Christ, calling people to repent before before Christ comes. Of course, when Christ comes, then the theocracy will happen, but that's delayed. That's not that's not happening yet. And so our job is to uh, to suffer for Christ, mm. not to take up the sword for Christ. Mm. Yeah, and wouldn't you say, would you say that, uh, well, maybe you or maybe Klein would say, would you say the Noahic covenant is probably the place, at least for a, a covenant to go to, to understand the relationship between cult and culture, church and culture? Um, yeah, so, right. So Klein would say that um, the covenant that is operative uh, between God and the world right now, and by the world he means the entire world, both believers and unbelievers, 
is the Noahic covenant of common grace. And, uh, in that covenant, God promised Abraham that, um, that he would sustain human life and preserve some degree of, um, cultural existence for humanity and even some form of civil government. Uh, but it's not theocratic in nature. It doesn't distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. It is common, not holy. Mm. So he used the term common grace, um, which, you know, that's, that's classic, uh, reform language from Piper, for example, to describe, um, the nature of this interim kingdom that we live in. We're not living in the, in the final state. We're living in the interim age between the first and the second coming of Christ. And in that interim age, our life, the way that we as believers relate to unbelievers is more akin to the way the patriarchs lived when they were walk, walking through the land. The land belonged to them in principle, but it was still occupied by the Canaanites. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living as sojourners in the land and not as uh, conquistadors. They were not coming in like Joshua to destroy the Canaanites. They were living like sojourners, and they actually did enter into treaties with the Canaanites. Mm -hmm. Even though when you get to Sinai, God says, don't do that. Don't make any treaties with them. Just destroy them. But prior to that time, prior to the, the coming of the um, the intrusion of the day of judgment prior to that point, um, which is similar to our life now, they were allowed to make covenants with them and to try to coexist with them. And yes, to also bear witness and mm. to call them to repentance, but not to take up the sword and not to enforce uh, the principles of the kingdom of God upon society. Yeah, I think that's a good point, especially comparing the time of the patriarchs to today. That's that's very helpful. Seems that even in this short podcast, we are barely scratching the surface of Klein's work. Is there a book, two questions, is there a book that you would recommend for someone getting introduced to Klein to kind of go directly to, to get the either his primary uh, theological beliefs or maybe one of his uh, better works for a beginner to understand? And then second question, is there a progression of books to work through that unfold that a little bit more? Yeah, good question. Um, I have two recommendations for uh, a beginning introduction to Klein's thought. Uh, one is his own last book called God, Heaven, and Armageddon. And it sounds like, oh, this must be about, you know, eschatology. <laughs> but it's, it's actually just a a summary of his whole of his whole covenant by in the preface he says it's basically a survey of the whole history of the kingdom of God from Eden to the New Jerusalem. Oh, that's it. Okay. Uh, so, God heaven and Armageddon is a great place to start. It's um, his last book, and it was, he wrote it with the thought in mind that it would be more accessible to uh, lay people. Although, it's given the way he writes with his long sentences and his own terminology. I'm not sure he completely succeeded in making it <laughs> perfectly accessible, but it is probably the most accessible of all of his books. Yeah. And it's a little bit shorter. I think it's around 200 pages. Uh, another possibility, though, that I would recommend is not a book by him, but it's um, called Sacred Bond. 
Covenant Theology Explored by Michael Brown and Zach Teal. And uh, this is a, a very accessible book. I think that, you know, it, it's not setting out to say, here's Klein theology, but it's very influenced by Klein. Mm. And it just goes through the different covenants. So, you know, there's a chapter on the covenant of redemption, a chapter on the covenant of work, and so on. So I highly recommend that as well. That might actually be a better place to start than Klein himself. But if you want to actually get a taste of Klein, I would say God, Heaven, and Harmageddon is good. Um, also, you could uh, check out my uh, YouTube channel. Uh, just go to YouTube and type in Charles Lee Iron, and I have some videos there. I have one video, for example, that just goes through what I call Klein Typical Theological Grid. This was based on, um, now here I am in 1993 sitting in his classes and a seminary student and watching him just lay out the whole picture of biblical theology. And he had, you know, these chalkboard drawings that he would put up on the board. So I have a video where I take that and adapt it and try to um, walk through his telling of the story from, mm. you know, starting with the garden and then, you know, the underlying covenant of grace and then you have what's going on with the Mosaic covenant, which is like an overlay and all that. So I try to explain all that in a simple way. Now, the other question you asked is, is there a progression of thought in Klein's uh, writing? And there is. Uh, and it goes back to what I was saying before about the fact that uh, he was trained under John Murray in the 1940s, but in the 60s, he began to break with Murray on uh, his definition of a covenant. And so from the 60s on, his writings become increasingly more precise and clear in the area of covenant theology. So if you look at some of the pre-1960s things that he wrote, like Trinity of the Great King, which is his first book in 1953, I believe, uh, that was the first book he wrote based upon the George Mendenhall book, where mm -hmm. he was showing the parallels between the ancient Near Eastern Suzerain Basel Treaties and the Book of Deuteronomy, which he viewed as being like one version of the of the, that Basel Treaty. Mm. Um, if you look at that book, he has you can find some sentences and some you know sections in there where he's not very clear, like he's not clear about the contrast between covenant of works and covenant of grace, or he's a little bit fuzzy on is the what is finite covenant? Is it a covenant of works or is it a covenant of grace? You kind of get blurry on that. But when you get after the 60s, um, he gets clearer and clearer. There's one book in the middle, right in the middle called Files Consign. Mm. That was published in 1968. And um, that book is divided into two parts. The first part is talking about covenant theology in general. And then the second part is his argument for infant baptism. Well, it's even more than that. Just his argument for understanding baptism as a uh, an oath sign. Mm. Uh, and then he has a chapter in that on infant baptism. Now, he always, when I was, when I knew him in the 90s and talked to him about this, he always said, you know, I'm really nervous about people reading that book. He says, I still stand by the part about baptism, 
But the first two chapters where I talk about covenant theology, I would want to put things a little bit differently now. Man, I thought you were going to tell me so. the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, he still stood by that. But um, I have a paper on my website, if you go to upperregister.com, where I explain what the differences are between where he would have revised his thinking mm-hmm. from Biosign uh, to his more mature view. If you want to get his most mature final presentation of covenant theology, it would be Kingdom Prologue. Well, that's helpful, brother. I just have one quick final question that I just thought of. So you mentioned structure of biblical authority. I actually had Miles Van Pelt for Old Testament interpretation at Gordon-Conwell. He loved Klein. He was all about yeah. him. And he wrote on the board and kind of drew for us kind of the the structure of the canon, right? And that was the first time yeah. I always thought like it was just haphazardly put together or the canon was just threw together based upon like genre. Is there anyone that's taken the structure of biblical authority and simplified it and rewrote it into another book, kind of presenting that? I don't know. It's a good question. I would probably, Miles Van Pelt would be the one. <laughs> uh, I know that he has done some work on that issue of the Old Testament canon, and I know that he is influenced by clients. So um, I'm sure if you were to Google his name, and something on canon, you could find something like that. Okay. Uh, but yeah, basically, uh, that's a really helpful book too. Um, uh, the structure of biblical authority. Uh, that one um, is really neat because he actually, I found that book to be maybe one of his easier books to read. I felt like he didn't have too many new terms and too many long sentences. I felt like it was more accessible, at least for me personally. Um, but basically in that book, he, he goes into how do we interpret the nature of scripture? Like the title of the book, right? The structure of biblical authority. Uh, what is it that gives scripture its authority? He's basically arguing that, uh, the thing that gives it its authority, the thing that, um, we should look to, to the, the, the way we should view scripture is that it's basically a covenant document. Mm. And, and so just as like in the ancient Near Eastern treaties, there was always a treaty clause at the end because you had the different sections, right? You had the uh, the historical prologue, the preamble, the stipulation, the sanctions, and so on. But then there was always at the end a uh, section called the treaty uh, documentary clause that said no one can tamper with it. If anyone comes along and tries to change the terms, you know, they're going to be under a curse. And you see that same thing in uh, the Old Testament, right? In Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, God says, no one is to add to or subtract from the words of this covenant. Uh, you see the same thing repeated in the book of Revelation. That's right. And so his argument is that that's what Scripture is. It's basically a treaty document. Now, it's not literally a treaty document because it has other genres like praise and proverbs and so on like that. But you can understand the other genres as being somehow connected to the treaty concept. Mm. and to the covenantal concept. Mm, that's so, helpful. Yeah, it's very helpful. Yeah. I like that book. He also does a, he has a great section in that book on typology and trying to understand uh, how the types work. Uh, he also has a, a really strong explanation of what he calls intrusion ethics, which gets into the issue of theonomy. Mm-hmm. Intrusion ethics is what I was saying before about you know, what was going on when Joshua brought the armies of Israel into the land? That was an intrusion of the day of judgment. 
And so there are certain things in the Israelite theocracy and specifically in the Mosaic law that are reflecting that intrusion ethic, that are reflecting that judgment is coming. And so you can't apply those to a common group situation today. Mm, That's a good word. Well, brother, thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing a little bit about the life and theology of Meredith Klein. We, we appreciate the work that you're doing, and uh, we appreciate you being our number one guest. So, Yeah, it's great talking to you, and I hope that people um, can get in touch with some of Klein's writings and get exposed to his thinking. Uh, he has a lot to offer the church. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening to Pilgrim Talk. And once again, we'd encourage you to visit us on Facebook. You can search Theology for Sojourners. That is the word for F-O-R. And again, if you found this episode helpful or you know someone that might benefit from it, go ahead and share it with your friends. 